This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. And this week, my guest is Tony Blair. If you'd said to people then, we're out in the single market, we're out in the customs union, I think even Theresa May would have said, well, hang on a minute, we haven't decided that. So by the way, how did we decide it? We didn't. We just stumbled into it. There's a new Ides of March for Britain. The 23rd of the month is trigger day for Article 50. That's the formal mechanism by which the UK starts leaving the EU. And it kickstarts lengthy talks on what Britain's relations with institutional Europe will be in trade, the economy, freedom of movement and legal implications afterwards. But 48% of voters in June 2016 opposed leaving the European Union. So where do their views figure in post-Brexit Britain? Tony Blair has decided to put himself at the helm of a fight back. His new think tank is the Institute for Global Change, and it's committed to opposing what he describes as a frightening authoritarian populism. But is Brexit really just a manifestation of that liberal nightmare? And how might the process of leaving the EU be stopped now that it's underway? I met up with Mr Blair at his office in central London. So, Tony, you've said, I don't know if we can succeed, but future generations will judge us if we don't try. But Article 50 is about to be triggered as we're speaking. So how do you practically hope to stop Brexit? Brexit can only be stopped if it becomes clear that a majority of people in the country have decided that it's better to stay. And that means, bluntly, that significant numbers of people who voted leave have decided once they actually see the terms of leaving, once they know the terms of leaving, that this isn't to their liking. And so Brexit only is stopped if the will of the people changes and that that becomes manifest. And as I will say to people, it's like the old you know, analogy I use about house swapping. I mean, last year's vote in the referendum was an agreement or a decision that we wanted to swap homes. But we haven't actually seen the other house yet. Now we're going to have the opportunity to go around, see the neighbourhood, do the structural survey, have a look and see if it's to our liking or not. If it appears that it's not to our liking, then obviously it's open to people to change. You're going back to your lawyer roots with that conveyancing analogy, but it does seem to me that it sits oddly with the fact that Article 50 is intended to say we're leaving. Brexit means Brexit, says Theresa May, doing your old job as Prime Minister here in Britain. So what is the mechanism, what's the timeline by which you could stop it? Well, you're right. It's obviously, you know, Article 50, once it's triggered, it's a lockdown for for a two-year process. On the other hand, it's never been triggered before. You know, we're in virgin territory, whichever way you look at it. And, And I think if it becomes clear 
for example, members of parliament start coming back from their constituency and saying, now we see what the impact is, you know, our constituents are, are getting very anxious about it. You know, where, where there is a will, there, there will be a way found. And I also think for the rest of Europe, remember, most, most of the countries in Europe don't want us to leave. I think one option, if we were serious about it as a country, is whether Britain stays in a reformed Europe. In other words, Europe also changes to accommodate some of the concerns the British people have, which are common concerns throughout Europe. And this sort of Brexit means Brexit. This is now a phrase that is, that is effectively meant just to shut down debate so that people no longer question whether Brexit is actually worth the cost and therefore it becomes Brexit at any cost. And I'm not sure that really is what people were voting for last June. Is that why Theresa May used that phrase? Or do you think, and I'm casting you back to, to your old job and putting yourself in her shoes, that she used that phrase precisely to stop people like you coming along and trying to undo it? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think what the, the purpose of, of, of this is particularly to use that very powerful cartel and the media on the right, to combine that with the Conservative Party that the moment's in, in the complete ascendance uh, in British politics and to say, no, that's it, you know, You've had your say, you shouldn't have any more say. Now just, we've all got to shut up and get on with it. But just recall that straight after the referendum, if you'd said to people then, we're out the single market, we're out the customs union, I think even Theresa May would have said, well, hang on a minute, we haven't decided that. So by the way, how did we decide it? We didn't, we just stumbled into it. So we're now out of the single market, out of the customs union. We're going to go through this incredibly complicated process because no one's ever... Most trade agreements are about liberalising trade. This agreement's about deliberalising trade after four decades or more of interaction. So this is a negotiation of unparalleled complexity. And I think there is a certain point in time when the British people will ask the question. I'm not saying this is certain at all, but I think it's possible where they ask the question, hang on a minute, what really are we doing this for? Do you think that Theresa May has been inconsistent? She was a Remainer. You point out that the course of hard Brexit was not necessarily clear at the time of the vote. Are you suggesting that she should have fought harder for a different variety of, of Brexit or just not embraced it at all? I am naturally incredibly sympathetic to anyone doing the job of Prime Minister because I know how hard it is. And I know, uh, frankly, you know how misconceived a lot of the criticism is that you get as Prime Minister. And I think she's someone who's a genuine patriot who wants to do the best for Britain and believes that the country haven't taken this decision in the referendum. It's her duty as Prime Minister to deliver that. But I, you know, there is an oddity about this situation where I, I couldn't imagine being Prime Minister and having the defining purpose of my government, something I didn't actually believe in. And then the assumption that she voted remain uh, genuinely then it's odd to be in a situation where the very people who were telling us herself and the Chancellor this was a bad idea are now telling us it's actually a one and once in a generation opportunity. In other words, not saying we're going to have to make the best of a bad job, but really this is brilliant for the country. I do find that odd. You did embrace a referendum when you were Prime Minister. You didn't then go ahead and hold it, but you also came under similar pressures to hold a referendum. At one point you thought it was a good idea. Was that a mistake? No, I think if, if, if we were going to take a step of further integration, in other words, to change the status quo in favour of further integration, I think 
you know, I came to the conclusion, I'd, I'm not happy about referendums as a method of government, to be honest, but I, I came to the conclusion if we were going to integrate, so supposing we were going to join the single currency, you really couldn't do that without a referendum. This is different. This is put, we, we put on the table our whole membership of the European Union. Now, you can argue whether it's a good idea or a bad one. I, I've said what I've said on that, but we are where we are. The question is, is now, how do we how do we ensure that as this process takes shape and as we know what the real terms of Brexit are going to be economically and politically, we at least keep the option open of saying, you know, having looked at this, maybe we should go back to Europe and say, let's try and navigate a way that we keep our relationship with Europe and keep it strong within the European Union, but nonetheless, Europe makes change and, and reform. And, you know, one of the things I find really strange, for example, when the government today is saying, now, now we want closer cooperation on defence with Europe. I mean, okay, we want closer cooperation on defence in Europe. It's a very good idea. I actually started the process of European defence when I was prime minister, actually with a lot of these Eurosceptics attacking it. Now we want to integrate on defence, but we want to withdraw from the single market. It, it's bizarre. I mean, if we believe that our future lies in greater European cooperation and as a great global trading nation, how do we begin that with withdrawing from the largest global trading market on our doorstep? But what's puzzling me is, what's the timeline here? At what point would you know whether you'd succeeded or not? What would change people's minds? Yeah, that's, it's a very good question. But I think, you know, in the end with politics, you get a sense. Okay, at the moment, by the way, I confess entirely that if you, you know, took British public opinion where it is at the moment, they just say, look, we made the decision, get on with it, and that's an end of it. Okay. But what I'm saying is, I think as it becomes manifest how difficult this is and the cost of it, then it's possible that people ask, is the gain really substantial? The pain obviously is very substantial. And meantime, of course, nothing else is really occupying the government. So you you don't have a timeline in mind. You're not thinking there is a moment that I can foresee, and I don't mean that you can foresee the circumstances, not even you have got that, the mystic meg capacity to do that, but that you think the economy will be in a worse state by X, whether it's the end of next year or after that 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 would be the moment at which you would expect this to come to fruition. Otherwise, it's how long is a piece of string, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is difficult to judge when it is. And, you know, the only real economic indicator we've got at the moment is the currency devaluation, which has happened as a result of Brexit and which is substantial, frankly. But it was necessary currency devaluation, no? Um, this didn't happen as a result of a market correction. This happened because of Brexit. And that will put up the cost of living for, for many people, including the poorest families. But I think you could have a situation where, say, in you know, six months, nine months, maybe a year's time, where it's clear there is going to be a genuine economic penalty, where companies are relocating jobs, and where you know, instead of more money coming into the Treasury as a result of Brexit, less money is coming in. Let's imagine this moment arrives. What do you do then? Do you simply hold more events? Do you go out and proselytise more in the media? Or do, do you do what some people have flirted with, for other reasons as well as Brexit, which is found some sort of new political entity reaching across the centre ground? Look, I don't think it's really possible to create a new political entity, and I'm certainly not in, engaged in, in that. But I do think it's possible... Because remember, a majority of members of parliament are actually against Brexit. 
I do think it's possible that, that it, it becomes clear to members of parliament that there is a substantial rethink going on. And, you know, quite, this is not a matter of science. It's, it's, uh, and, but I would say, just as it's very clear today that that rethink has not occurred yet, I think it will become pretty clear by whatever means, whether it's opinion polls or MPs in their constituency or however it is, it will come pretty clear if a rethink is going on. What about your own role in this? You have acknowledged that for some people, something that Tony Blair is at the figurehead of is, is a bit of a turn-off. You have fans, but you have plenty of, of detractors too, both in Labour circles and beyond. Uh, one take that we had on it by Badgett was that you would be sufficiently involved in politics to be a liability for other pro-Europeans and Liberals, but float too far above the fray to change public perceptions. You could step back or forward, but you would have no luck in the middle. Is he right? Uh, yes, I think that is right. I'm absolutely fully in and committed to this, but I'm not the figurehead or the leader of this campaign. I'm just one voice amongst many. And, you know, I always say to people, as I said when I made my speech in Europe um, some weeks ago, you know, I'm happy to say after you to all the others going through the door, and I'm delighted, actually, that people like John Major are speaking out because, you know, they're, they're very credible voices. But if you care about the country and you don't become prime minister and govern it for 10 years without caring deeply about it, it's what I've dedicated my life to, essentially, you know, when a decision like this happens and you really believe it's fundamentally contrary to the best interests of the country you love, you, you've got a duty to speak out. I don't particularly want to be in this situation. It just brings me a whole lot of vitriol and vituperation. But I, I couldn't personally sit there and not say to people, I really, really think we should keep the option open of thinking again. We'll hold back on the vitriol. Then. But what advice would you be giving to, to the other 27 member states in terms of the negotiation? And um, you, know, you, have to, you have convening power. There is sometimes a bit of a sense in British government circles that Angela Merkel hasn't been the biggest possible help. Do we need a different response from those who are leading Europe at the moment? Speak to her if, if you could. Um, yes, I mean, I think... Look, you've got an election in France, uh, you've got an election in Germany. Over the next six months, we will know a lot more about the politics of Europe. I think after that point, probably hard before that point, but after that point, it's really important that we work with European partners and say to them, which is true, and I remember I said this in a speech to the European Parliament back in 2005, we've got to wake up. You know, Europe is being perceived as distant from the citizens of Europe. It's a great idea, but it's not being delivered in the right way. So there is a very powerful case for reform in Europe. And one of the tragedies of Britain leaving is that Britain could have formed the right alliances to lead that process of reform, and instead we're opting out of Europe altogether. Yeah, that's the other world that could have existed but doesn't. So what, and I'm using Angela Merkel as an example, and of course she's facing election this year as well, but she is a, a decisive figure in this. Is the response, I'm going to focus on Germany at the moment, is the response from Germany particularly helpful or do they need to be more helpful to bring about the circumstances that you describe? Well, I'd like to see them much more helpful, of course, but I think in order to do that, they need to feel that this is not a lost cause in respect of Britain, which is why... You know, what I think is you, you should keep one option as Britain staying in a reformed Europe, but it's hard for them to do that, frankly, if the Brexit means Brexit gives them the sense, and this is the sense they have in Europe at the moment, that actually the government's just determined the right of British politics are in complete command and there's no point in having a, a different type of discussion. Could a different deal on freedom of movement have 
affected the result of the referendum. You, you've spoken about the impact of, of immigration and uh, also the large numbers that came into the, the country from the EU while, while you were in office. Yes, I think it could have done. You know, I think if the emergency break had been there, it might have made a difference. So that was a mistake? Yeah, but you know, it's easy to go back and look at it now. But I think the issue of immigration is very difficult, though, because I think there are areas in which immigration from Europe is a real problem. Uh, it's a problem sometimes for local wages and local employment in certain parts of the country. I personally believe that the biggest anxieties over immigration in Britain, as in the rest of Europe, are non-EU immigration. And the, the, the kind of an, a, another paradox of this situation is that the, the immigration people most care about isn't really affected by this vote. So how that would seem to suggest that you are not as open in some ways to immigration as some people might say you are, as a, as a sort of declared liberal or open uh, on the open side of the argument on this, you think we should cut down on immigration from outside the EU? You see, one of the things that's really strange for me is is how the history of my time in office is rewritten so that we, I was, you know, a member of the liberal elite, constantly doing things the liberal elite wanted. I was under attack from the liberal elite most of the time. And one of the areas I was under attack on was our commitment to reduce numbers on asylum, to change the law on asylum, to change the law on immigration. I actually came out in 2005 when I fought the election on immigration with a proposal for identity cards, which I believe in the end is where countries will go in, in an effort to be clear who should be here and who shouldn't. I'm in favour of rules on immigration, I'm just not in favour of prejudices. But you're never going to persuade people to set aside the prejudices if you don't have strong rules. You mentioned liberal elites there, a charge which is occasionally thrown at The Economist too, I should say, in, in fairness. But your, your new undertaking, which is broader than Brexit, it's, about, it's anti-populist, it's trying to renew the centre, as you put it. Uh, has you at the helm of it? Have you just been endorsed George Osborne, the former Chancellor, who's just got a big job as the editor of a, a London paper, and you've got a, a, a pretty high-up guy from Harvard running the show? It's sounding a bit liberal elites, isn't it? It's an an effort to say, one, that globalization has actually brought huge benefits and we can deal with its risks and dangers without giving up on its benefits. And secondly, that the only way you're ever going to persuade people of that is if you build from the center. And if you try and fight the populism of the right, which is exploiting the immigration issue, by a populism of the left, you'll fall flat in your face and fail. And that rightist populism will triumph. And that is the lesson of history, is the right lesson today. So, for example, on immigration, provided you've got a clear understanding of what people's anxieties are and you meet them on immigration, you can make the case for immigration. But if you're just simply saying it's a good thing and you're not dealing with the problems, then forget it. You've pivoted also in your own, since I interviewed you last at length, from your, your, your own model of what you're doing. You're not pursuing the consultancy anymore. You're bringing your organisations together. Someone might look at it from the point of view, you didn't really make that consultancy work financially, so you've decided to go another way, bring things together, and kind of relaunch Tony Blair 3.0. Is that what it's about? Well, I think the last time we spoke about this, I actually said to you that my intention was to take the profits from the business side and put them to the not-for-profit side, which we're now done. And the reserves, which are almost £10 million, we've transferred over. That allows us to get this institute off the ground properly. We continue the work in Africa, the work in the Middle East, the work on countering extremism. There's around about um, roughly 200 people employed in the organisation. But it's all de destined to one aim, which is 
how do you make globalisation work for the many and not the few? Here's a question that came in for us on Twitter, and it's one you have heard in various guises, but it's quite pointed at the moment. The British Labour Party is polling 26%. How do you feel about the idea that Jeremy Corbyn's popularity within the party is essentially a reaction to your own leadership? Yeah, I, I, I'm always a bit curious about how those that are losing elections want to cast the blame for those losses and those of us who won them. I mean, look, you know, without getting into Jeremy Corbyn as an individual, because I actually don't think it's simply about him, my view of the Labour Party is very clear, always has been, always will be. It wins when it builds from the centre and when it owns the future, when, in other words, it's addressing the problems of today with modern forward-looking policy. It loses when it returns to the old shibboleths of the past and pretends that it can it can build from that an electoral majority and you know it's up to people to decide which which view mine or Jeremy Corbyn's is more likely to bring Labour success. No return to the SDP model? No I don't look I don't think there's a, a an appetite for uh, new political parties but I do think it is a tragedy today that we don't have a properly competitive opposition I think it is a facilitator of Brexit, and I think the country cannot seriously want to have a choice between a hard Brexit Tory party and a hard left Labour party. Daniel Blair, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. If you've any thoughts on whether Brexit should be stopped, and if so, how it might happen, then do put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist for all of our coverage of Brexit and much else at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.